This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. In 1838, Abraham Lincoln, an unknown 28-year-old state legislator, gave a speech in Springfield, Illinois, on the perpetrator of our political institutions. I don't know that I said that right. A quarter century before he led the country through its first near-death experience, Lincoln asked, how might American democracy die? He predicted that no foreign conqueror at the head of a huge army would ever cross the Blue Ridge Mountains and drink from the Ohio River. Rather, Lincoln said, if destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. These words from George Packer's latest book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, reflect the scary question we are afraid to utter and incapable of answering. Are we witnessing and experiencing the beginning of the end of American democracy. The same skill and concise analysis that he brought to his work at The New Yorker and now with The Atlantic and his award-winning books, including Assassin's Gate, The Unwinding and Inner History of the New America is on full display in his new book, The Last Best Hope, helps us understand where we are at this critical juncture of the American journey and provides ideas and steps, none easy or assured, for us to emerge whole and equal. As a fervent admirer of his articles and books, it is my honor to welcome George Packer to Just the Right Book. So good to be with you. And anything that gets books out into the hands of readers is something that I uh, have a special feeling for. Well, that's our job. So uh, I'm delighted about that. Let's start with what feels to me like a a logical question. And that is, how did we take such bad care of ourselves? Um, Many want to say we unraveled uh, because of Trump. And although Trump doesn't come off um, too well, and he takes Responsible, you you give him responsibility for what he did. You also present a very rational analysis that the seeds of what we're seeing now occurred in the seventies. Um, so what happened then? Yeah, I let me just say a couple words about how this book came to be. Okay, um, good question. Yeah, and that will answer your question, Roxanne. This is a COVID book. It was a book I wrote because I was trapped by the pandemic. I could not travel. I couldn't do any real reporting, which is what I've done for all my other books. So rather than starting a new reported book, uh, I sat down and began reading. And I read a lot of American history and American writers. I read Tocqueville, Whitman, Walter Lippmann, um, Bayard Rustin, some great figures of American democracy or analysts of American democracy, because I was watching the country fall apart last year. We all were. It was a cataclysmic year, like we haven't seen since ever, maybe (laughs) ever, but at least since 1968, if not 1861. Right. Think of all that happened. The year began with an impeachment. We almost immediately forgot the impeachment because then came the pandemic and the immense toll it took on this country that made us the world's leader in a disease that we should have been able to control because we had the tools, but we did not have the government or the society. It showed all the weaknesses. It exploited the underlying conditions that had come to divide us and weaken us. Then came mass protests like we haven't seen ever on a scale we've never seen before against police brutality, as well as smaller protests against lockdowns and mask mandates. Everyone was in a state of constant 
fever. Then came the election with this prospect of violence and people truly asking themselves and their friends, are we gonna go into a civil war after this? People were buying guns and stocking up on ammunition in case violence was coming. Uh, the election itself went off in a way that I think redeemed us. Mm. It was the best election in my lifetime in the middle of a pandemic in terms of orderliness and uh, people doing their civic duty and showing civic virtue and then resisting the effort of the incumbent, the president, to subvert democracy which concluded, climaxed on January 6th, which I think of as the last year of 2020, January 6th of this year, when Trump sent 20,000 Americans to try to subvert the constitution. What a year. And it was a near-death experience of the kind that Lincoln was talking about in 1838 when he described America ending by suicide, if it ever ends. Um, it seemed like we might be on the verge of suicide. We were not. We stepped back. We saved our democracy, and we also managed through our ingenuity to produce a miracle vaccine that began to beat back the pandemic. So it was a year in which we went from one wild extreme of dread and despair to another. I wanted to describe how this happened, not this year or last year, or even the last four years, but really the last 50 years, because I think of the uh, the turmoil we're in now and the, 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 um, the poisoned politics that we now see every day as something that's been coming on for a very long time. And as I say in the book, a failure the size of Trump took the whole of America. It was not, yes, his supporters bear the responsibility. He bears the ultimate responsibility for all the damage he did to our democracy and to our lives and health. But we all in some way produce Trump because he is the product, I think, of years and years of our coming apart of what I called the unwinding in an earlier book. So the question is, how did that happen? And that's your question. I would put it in two very simple trends. One, and both of these began in the 70s, one is the rise of what I call a multi-everything democracy. That is to say a democracy of every ethnic group, every race, every religion on the planet, which is something we've never had in this country. We had a white democracy for centuries. We had a white male democracy for most of our histories. Beginning in the 60s and 70s, black people, Latino people, immigrants from all over the world who began to come into the country in larger numbers, and Muslims and Hindus, as well as Christians and Jews and others, created for the first time in our history, a truly diverse democracy, which gave us, I think, both immense possibilities and a lot of tensions and strains. The other thing that was happening in those same years was the end of the industrial age and the beginning of the information economy. And that produced massive inequality of wealth and income like we haven't seen since the Gilded Age, so that we are now more stratified, more divided by education and income than we've been in my lifetime. And it keeps widening year after year. The pandemic opened up another gap between what we came to call the essential workers and the non-essential workers. And, and George, isn't part of that, um, you know, it, it's true that those changes took place, but it seemed like the other element is a kind of pessimism about our future baked in at the same time. So we started looking like a zero sum game. So it, it felt like we it became much more um, popular. I don't know if that's the right word to say, if I win, you lose. And yeah. therefore, if we give benefits over here, then I'm going to be short. Would you say that also started in the 70s? I think so. I think so. It really flourished in the 80s. I think that what you're describing is Reaganism, is the end of a strong presence of government in the lives of Americans in order to ensure 
a minimal level of survival, as well as to create equal opportunity. Instead, the what I call free America, the narrative of get government out of my life, cut my taxes, get the regulations off my business, and we'll have prosperity. That began yeah, in the late 70s and early 80s, and it was a reaction to some of the failures of government in the 60s and 70s. And yes, a zero-sum game is what I described, I think. When you have great diversity and rising inequality, uh, a lack of ability to move up, we are no longer the socially mobile society we used to be. We are less mobile than European countries. People essentially will die where they're born more and more than when I was a kid. And it's not how we so, think so of ourselves. Say, so all of those things, all of those things created an intense competition for status, for resources, and, and a, a lot of resentment and blaming of groups because suddenly it did seem like there was not enough for all of us. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. The world is racing to get back to normal and start meeting up in person again. But after a year we've all had, getting back to feeling normal takes time. As someone who works from home, it's hard sometimes when day in, day out, you haven't lived your apartment. And if you're feeling overwhelmed by it all, you're not alone. It's important to find the support you need to face those feelings and move forward. We all talk to our friends when we're experiencing issues, but they don't always give the advice we need. Not seeing them in person, sometimes those conversations feel impersonal, and getting unbiased feedback and advice from a licensed professional can be refreshing and actually rewarding. When you're in a low point, you might feel alone, but over 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health. We all need help sometimes, and asking for support when you need it is actually a sign of strength. Talkspace makes it easy to match with a licensed therapist and schedule live video sessions, all from the comfort of your device and the comfort of your home. You can start messaging your therapist the same day you sign up. Whether you're a parent, student, millennial, or just someone having a hard day, Talkspace can provide the support to help you feel better with a single message. Talkspace offers individual and couples therapy in addition to medication prescription services. You can set goals with your therapist and they can help make sure you're really progressing. Talkspace therapists help you develop tools to cope in difficult times. Best part, Talkspace works around your schedule at your convenience. You can send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the app and schedule live video sessions with your licensed therapist from anywhere. Whether you're experiencing depression, anxiety, or other problems, Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform to help you sort through any issue. Thousands of licensed therapists are available for you to match with. And Talkspace therapists are experts in dozens of specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more, to help you start feeling better. Today, start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code JUSTTHERIGHTBOOK. That's $100 off when you use code JUSTTHERIGHTBOOK at Talkspace.com. Welcome back. We are talking with George Packer, author of Last Best Hope. Those two trends occurred. Reagan comes to office. He institutes the notion of, um, you know, smaller government and creates a narrative or, you know, he was an actor. So he creates a narrative around it that made it seem more benign than it actually was. And you talk about how Newt Gingrich is the one who really took the life out of any notion of what politics and government could be for the country. Yeah. So I I think that's right. When I was writing the section on what I call free America, which is really the Reagan narrative, right. I went back and read some of his speeches from the 1980 campaign and, and watched them on YouTube. Man, Roxanne, they're inspiring. They make you think that we're on a yeah. upward course of national renewal. We're all going to be in this together. We're going to take care of the weakest. We're going to allow the 
um, the, the talents of the talented to enrich us all. It's an incredibly optimistic view of what he called the shining city on the hill and no one could make it sound as attractive as Ronald Reagan. But what it really meant was the end of the blue collar working class, the end of unions, the blue collar unions, um, the age of monopoly, a return to an age of massive corporate power and monopoly power, which came when he changed our antitrust policies um, and the rise of a plutocracy that through whether in the financial sector or in, you know, in corporate rating, venture capital, private equity, those became the engines of wealth. Um, and suddenly the gap between the haves and have nots exploded and has kept on growing. And he, what Reagan also did, and this was really important, he changed the terms of politics. Really almost to this day, he set the limits, the parameters of where politics could take place. It had been further to the left during the Roosevelt years leading up to the great society. Reagan moved it to the right against government, against collective measures and toward you know, individual enterprise. And that was the, the most powerful political narrative of my life, the one that really convinced a lot of people. Newt Gingrich came along after Reagan. He didn't speak that language. The language he spoke was total war. He, was, uh, he saw politics the way Mao saw politics as war without bloodshed. That was Mao's line and, mm. and Gingrich loved to quote it. Gingrich turned Congress into a pitched battle in which the other party was not just your opponent, but your enemy and in which destruction was the goal. He wasn't building up the institution of the house. He was tearing it down in order to give power to himself and his party. So I think Gingrich may be the most important politician of this 50 year period because he set us on a course of polarization where there was no limit, there was no shame. And we kept sinking lower and lower every year. We found that we could go lower. And we, we have gone from Gingrich to QAnon in just a few decades. Yeah. Um, it was a kind of inevitable downward slide that he set us off on. And George, contemporaneous with that going on, do you think there were people who um, understood where that could where that could lead? I think that the more far-sighted politicians saw that. In the end, this was going to harm everyone, even those who gained power through it. Mm. Because if your goal really is to, to solve big problems together, you can't do it without government. And you can't do it without bipartisanship. That is something we've learned the hard way. Each party, when it takes power, imagines it's going to govern alone and have its way. Neither party has enough of a majority to do that. The Democrats have a majority, but it's very small. And the Republicans have learned to use and abuse, I would say, our norms and our rules to keep the minority in as much power as possible through gerrymandering and through uh, these new voter suppression laws that are being passed around the country. So it became a kind of a total war in which everything was legitimate. And it inevitably infected both parties. The Democrats are not innocent here. Um, I think Barack Obama, of all the political figures of this period, thought he could bring us to a higher ground. Yeah. He thought he could bring the two parties together. There is no red America. There is no blue America. There is the United States of America. Well, unfortunately, he was wrong. He tried and he kind of got played. And now he's seen as someone who didn't get a whole lot done because... He trusted the other side to play fair and they were not on the level. So it's something we now have just grown used to. We don't expect anything from the two party system. It's all a question of which party is gonna gain power. You know, so that brings up a lot of issues and I'm gonna wanna get to, uh, you know, a major element uh, of your book about the narratives that now have dominance. But I wanna cover two things um, before we get to that. One is, uh, I was struck by uh, the statement that you opened the book with, which is, I am an American, 
No, I don't want pity. In the long story of our experiment in self-government, the world's pity has taken the place of admiration, hostility, awe, envy, fear, affection, and repulsion. Pity is more painful than any of these, and after pity comes indifference, which would be intolerable. This one paragraph, you know, we could spend the entire hour just talking about that, but let's start with this one. Do you think that phrase that once was so simple, I am an American, is in its is and of is in and of itself now divisive and conjures up its cousin patriotism, which certainly has become politicized. Well, I began the book with that sentence in order to reclaim it. I don't believe in surrendering the American flag to someone who is as hostile to democracy as Donald Trump. He doesn't deserve it. He shouldn't have it. And it's a great mistake to let an imposter, a demagogue, um, corner you until you've given up things that are of great value. So this book is a patriotic book. It's a book that makes some claim for the ongoing value of American democracy and for my attachment to it and for my, yeah, my attachment really to an American identity that is the one thing that keeps tying us together in this terrible quarantine <laughs> in which the red and the blue are stuck. We are stuck with each other. We cannot sever that ligament unless we're gonna have a terrible return of civil war. So what does it mean to be stuck together and how do we live together without abandoning our values and surrendering what matters? So I wanted to start by making, yes, yeah, staking a kind of a claim to the right Taking it back, actually, right? Taking yeah, back yeah, the term. Yeah, and there's a good deal in the book about what patriotism is and is not. I distinguish patriotism from nationalism. Nationalism is chanting USA, USA. Nationalism is bullying other countries. Nationalism is waving the flag in order to beat up your political opponents. Patriotism, to me, is not all that different from family loyalty. I don't like my country a lot of the time. In fact, yeah. I know its faults better than any foreigner does. I write about them all the time. But in the end, it is my country. And when things are hard, that's the time when I kind of want to stick close to it and get it, get through the way you do with your family. They're the ones you you will always have and you're stuck with for better and worse. So that's my sort of modest description of what patriotism means. It is not, um, we're better than everyone else, just as you don't feel your family is better than everyone else, but it's yours. Yeah. And, and identifying <laughs> with it gives you a kind of sense of meaning and, and of security in a way. And as much as I am tempted at times to say with other people, let's just move abroad. A lot of people were saying that last year when no one yeah. <laughs> would have us, we were not welcome abroad. Um, I, don't, I don't want to give up on my family just because uh, it's, it's got uh, some ugly things going on in it. I wanna, mm. I wanna get through it for my children as well as myself. Hey, George, you just use that word in, in talking about democracy. And we've, you know, there've been a ton of articles about the threat to our democracy. Yet, as I read those articles, but most particularly when I read your book, I wonder if we would all define it the same way. Um, and I went back, you talk about Tocqueville uh, in the book and his, his understanding of America then, which you would suggest continue to have meaning so how would you define the critical elements of our democracy? Well, we all know that the pillars of democracy are the, the vote, universal franchise, that the people choose 
their rulers. The governing class governs with the consent of the governed, as the Declaration of Independence says. But there are also rules in place to defend the rights of individuals and minorities from the tyranny of majority rule. We have majority rule, but we also have checks on that rule in the form of the three branches of government, the ability of the Supreme Court to review legislation for constitutionality, and of course, the Bill of Rights. Um, and But this is not what I'm mostly concerned with in Last Best Hope. We all know the principles, the rules, the pillars of democracy. The word I use most often in the book is the one that you just read in that opening paragraph, which is self-government. Self-government. And self-government to me is democracy in action. It's not just static and eternal rules. It's the ability of people to govern themselves. It's a set of skills and habits that can that have to be learned. They are not natural. You're not born with it because governing yourself is such hard work. Most of us are tempted to give the burden to someone else, to the ruling class, to a demagogue, to an algorithm. Let anything tell me what to do except me. That's hard, but it is our burden. It's our burden in democracy and it can be forgotten. And I think we have forgotten how to govern ourselves. And to me last year and the disaster of the pandemic was a daily display of a country that could no longer govern itself, that could not solve problems together, that had lost the ability to compromise, to debate, um, to make decisions. These are all skills that we need as citizens of a democracy. They are the Tocqueville called them the habits of the heart. They're very, they're, they're personal, they're emotional. They're not just knowing the constitution. Um, and if we lose those habits, the constitution won't save us. In a sense, the constitution really is just a piece of paper. And if the public, if the people lose the habits of self-government, then a Trump can come in and begin to dismantle Democracy. And you know, I, I think, George, you touch on that point. And when I think back to what went on, particularly during the beginning of the pandemic, I don't know how many times I or other people I spoke to felt like, oh, my God, we're on our own, it, that that we had a president getting up and, and like saying, basically, find your own masks, figure this out. I really you know, except for Jared Kushner, which you do a good job of explaining, you know, how incompetent he was as, you know, part of the solution. But I think it's the first time in my life, I mean, I might have disagreed with the government, but um, I, that you thought there is no government. There, there yeah. was nobody we could count on. The way I put it in the book is, you realize the government doesn't care if I live or die. Now, there are Americans who have probably felt like that for most of their lives. Yeah. But you and I have never felt that way. It reminded me of reporting I've done in truly failed states. Yeah. Iraq, Sierra Leone, Ivory Coast, places where civil war was happening, where the government had pretty much ceased to exist and where no one expected it to do anything. They all just took care of themselves. They set up roadblocks in their neighborhood in order to keep out the criminals. They um, found their own way to get some medicine from a doctor by paying black market prices. You know, where, where chaos prevailed, people had to look out for themselves. Of course, we weren't at that point. We were still basically functioning. Uh, hospitals were open, EMTs, ambulances, Etc. But the federal government had stopped governing and had said, essentially, figure it out yourselves. Governors, companies, schools, individuals, figure it out yourselves. It was frightening. And I remember clearly in the early days of March 2020, my wife and I looking at each other and saying, do we keep sending the kids to school? Yeah. Do, do we keep riding the subway? Do, do we close everything down? Do we- Will there be anarchy? Do we see our friends? Should we go to the supermarket and buy up all the toilet paper and, and water? I mean, 
and no one in power was telling, was giving us any guidance. And, and that to me was a taste of what the collapse of self-government is like. And it's, it's not, it's frightening. Yeah, you know, George, you bring up, you sort of incidentally brought up this point, which I, I, I want us to get back to is that in some ways, the hope is it gave those of us who had always figured the government was there for us, a level of compassion of what it must look like for the millions and millions of people who feel like government isn't there for them, that they are invisible and they have been on their own. And it's how it laid the seeds of their distrust of government in the first place. Yeah. Well, with better leadership, the pandemic might have knitted us together. Yeah. Because it was beyond anything we've ever experienced, a threat to every one of us. Yeah. All we were all equal. We were, were equal all equal. For it. Being human was all that mattered. But it turns out that common humanity is not an idea most of us can hold on to for very long. And almost immediately, with the great help of Trump, we began to divide to look at other groups with fear and anger, the divisions were stark. And the one that strikes me still as the most um, incriminating of our society is what we came to call the essential and non-essential workers. Mm. The essential workers were basically the working class who have to show up to work in person in order to load the trucks to ring up the groceries, uh, to admit the patients, to do the things that have to be done for us to continue to survive. They were also the worst paid and the likeliest to get COVID because they had to go to work and had the least uh, security in the form of health insurance or investments or anything. So the inequality I talked about earlier was on full display because who were the non-essentials? Me, uh, professionals, let's say senators and congressmen, um, journalists and architects and engineers and people who could work behind a laptop. And so we spent the year sitting down in front of a laptop safely, relatively safely from COVID while our paychecks continued to come because that yeah. class did not experience uh, the unemployment that the working class did. And our investments even got better because yeah. kept <laughs> so if you wanted evidence of an unfair economy, there it was. It was as if half of the country had to suit up in uniform and go fight the war, but had no benefits afterward. And half the country remained in civilian life, sitting at home with an internet connection. And I hoped, and I still hope, that that memory will stay with us, mm. the recognition of what it means to try to make it in this country on $12 an hour, that that stays with us and drives policy. I think it is driving policy today because I think it was, in addition to thinking the government doesn't care if I live or die, we all had to think I will live or die depending on whether the UPS driver shows up. Yeah, or that, or that uh, uh, worker, that aide in the hospital. I mean, they, they, you know, we talked about them being heroic. Let's, the, the hope is that we have a long enough memory to make sure they're rewarded because they're doing those heroics all the time. That's it. To, the, to my class, the professional class, the working class has become kind of invisible because we don't even really have to see them in a store any longer. We can do everything on Amazon and just press click. Mm. So that means they have, they've sort of lost their reality. I, I have a passage in the book where I describe in the industrial age, you know, the working class, you know, it was a terrible life. The, the work was hard and dirty and dangerous, but they had a heroic image as a kind of muscular backbone of the country. And they had- And can-do spirit. Yes, who made our bomber aircraft in World War II, et cetera. And they had unions to give them a voice. 
And today, the working class is basically either a store greeter at Walmart, who you don't notice when you walk in and who doesn't have a union, or um, a warehouse worker loading the goods that you have just clicked on the Amazon website. And you don't really see them and they don't have that place in our society where we know that we depend on them and we have to give them their due as both economically, but also as citizens, as equal citizens. So uh, George, I wanna make sure because time's going so fast and I could frankly listen to you all day. Um, but you mentioned two countries and, you know, we talk about that divisiveness a lot, that we have two countries that seem certainly not to share values and, and more recently not even share facts. Um, but you see it in even more detail, not just two countries, but four political and cultural narratives that have dominance. So share with us what those narratives are and then I want to make sure we get to what you see as our, our way of moving forward from here. So I'll be brief about the narratives, but these are the four narratives that have dominated this period we're talking about since the 70s. And by narratives, I mean ideas of what America is or should be, moral identity. Free America, which I've mentioned, is essentially Reagan's America. It's the America of, of the market. Let the market decide what to reward. And it really has been a dominant one, but I think it's failed because it's created winners and losers on, on a vast scale and has hollowed out the parts of the country that um, have been displaced by globalization, technology, and the information age. So it really has not created the shared prosperity that Reagan promised us. It's collected a lot of wealth at the top. It's essentially the orthodoxy of the Republican Party, the elite of the Republican Party. To this day, it's still what Republicans in Congress say, we need to cut taxes. Smart America, which follows somewhat sequentially, is I think of the Clinton's America. It's the America of education and rising through education to a successful life in basically in one of the professions uh, of the information economy. And it's a more, um, it has more of a sense of a role for government in softening the hard edges of the economy. But basically it's meritocracy. It says your talents and efforts um, should be rewarded. And if you don't rise, it's essentially your own- It's fault. on you. It's on you because we're rewarding merit here. We're not rewarding luck. But the problem with smart America, which is a kind of class, it's become a privileged class, the educated class who go to the right schools and have the right credentials and kind of recognize one another. They intermarry. They eat the same foods. They get their kids into the same extracurriculars and they aim in tremendous competition to get their kids into the same colleges. And that's become a sort of new aristocracy because I don't think you fight your way into the meritocracy any longer. You're born into it. And the, the chances of a poor kid rising into this golden class is, are very, very slim. So I think the, the failure of smart America is thinking it's creating more equality or at least equal opportunity when in fact it's becoming a force for more inequality. Real America is the reaction of the heartland, of uh, the white Christian heartland, the working white working class against the failures of, and, and maybe even the condescension of smart America and free America. <laughs> Sarah Palin used the phrase real America to describe uh, what she loved, which was, she said, the patriotic, hardworking parts of the country. She meant the small towns, the rural areas, which is a very old idea. It goes back to Jefferson, the idea that the farmer or the plowman is more capable of governing us than um, the professor because of their common sense. And it, it's a powerful narrative in a democracy because democracy in a democracy, the people feel they should be the ones to rule. And when they sense that a class of elites 
educated elites are ruling over them, they rebel. And that's what Trump played into beautifully. He sensed that the Republican Party was no longer the party of the plutocrats, of free America. It was the party of real America, of the working class grassroots that were angry and pessimistic. And he answered their pessimism with a lot of, you know, with vitriol. And, and resentment. And he resentment. knew how to plug into their resentment and use it to his own advantage. Exactly. Think? I, I think he resented the elites because yeah. the New York elites had- He never was still been. from Queens. He was still from Queens. So even though people say, how could Trump claim to be a populist when he is a, he's a millionaire or whatever you believe he is, that's not really the answer because he felt the same resentment as those um, Americans down the income scale. And he understood that it would be easy to blame their problems on the immigrants, on the elites, on the cities, the coasts, and the liberals. So that became his way to power through real America. And the last of the narratives and the most recent to really make itself felt, I call just America, which is a younger, uh, but equally pessimistic um, surge among mostly educated young millennials who find the world is not what their parents promised. The jobs are not there. There's an overproduction of elites who don't have enough jobs to have the career they were promised. And who also think we are not making the progress our parents said we were making. This is not um, the more perfect union. In fact, essentially we're the same country of caste, of oppressor and oppressed that we've been for hundreds of years. Not that much has changed. And so we need a radical um, restructuring of our country in order to create justice. So justice is the battle cry and it's a generational cry um, on the part of the children of smart America, you could say. Mm. And, and George, I just uh, wanna read, you know, we talk about um, as a, as a society, we now think that there are winners and losers. And, and you write in the book that each one of these narratives appoints, anoints a winner and a loser. And in free America, the winners are the makers and the losers are the takers who want to drag the rest down. In smart America, the, women's, the winners are the credentialed merit, uh, merit meritocrats? How do you say that? Yeah, meritocrats. Yep. Meritocrats. And the losers are the poorly educated who want to resist inevitable progress. Real America, the winners are the hardworking folk of the white Christian heartland. And the losers are the treacherous elites and, and who are contaminating others who want to destroy the country. And in just America, the winners are the marginalized groups and the losers are the dominant groups that want to go on dominating. So when we think about how we can move forward, it's not as if you think one of these narratives ought to take the lead, like one has the set of answers. How do you think of these narratives playing a role in moving forward? They all have seized the imagination of a part of the country but they all, as you just read in that passage, keep part of the country out, have this exclusive quality, like you are actually a threat to the good life and we're gonna have to defeat you um, or at least cast you aside on the scrap heap of history. They don't really create a national narrative, a national identity. My proposal, my narrative is what I call equal America. And this goes back to what I think is the oldest impulse in our society that starts the Declaration of Independence with all men are created equal. And that Tocqueville, when he came here in the 1830s said was the most distinctive feature of Americans. He came from aristocratic Europe. And what he saw was what he called the passion for equality that was everywhere in our society, the desire of everyone to be as good as anyone else, to do whatever anyone else could do, to be excluded from nothing. This was a radical idea in the history of the world that 
everyone should have the same opportunities, the same status. It doesn't mean they had it. Tokfa was there during the decades of slavery, but it means the desire for it animated Americans and it became a kind of national character. I think a lot of our traits that we're famous for, whether it's our naivete, our openness, our friendliness, our arrogance, our cluelessness about other societies, all of this I think comes from the simple idea that why, why aren't we all the same? Why aren't we all as good as one another? Why do we, why do uh, waiters introduce themselves by saying, my name is Justin and I'm gonna be taking care of you tonight. There's no other country where a waiter would talk to you as if he was your buddy. But in this country, we don't believe, at least we, we have a sense that it's wrong to hold privileges over one another and to put on airs. If you put on airs, you're gonna be knocked down pretty quickly, which is why there's a long history of anti-intellectualism in this country. I think if we create conditions of greater equality through government policy and through education, and if we use that equality to learn to govern ourselves again, we can then come out of this darkness because self-government and equality are two sides of the same coin. Without a sense of being equals, we don't feel any shared citizenship. There's no basis for us to be together. And therefore, the ability to govern ourselves collapses. But to learn to govern ourselves again, I think we need to begin to see ourselves as equal citizens instead of as members of classes and groups that are in a hierarchical relation. So the last pages of the book are a bunch of ideas, and they're not original ideas, but they're the, the direction we need to move in toward greater equality and toward learning how to govern ourselves again in order to solve the problems that are now closing in on us almost every day. George, um, in reading your solutions, which, um, you know, it's going to be hard for us to disagree because I would subscribe um, to every one of them. So, some are revising the estate tax, changing the sources of uh, public of funding for public education, bringing antitrust back to its original Sherman Act conditions, and instead of what Milton Friedman and Robert Bork um, turned it into. But this will require overcoming a legislative logjam. This will. This will require a shift. Do you see, well, let me ask a series of questions because I can't ask the, the perfect one. And that is, what do you see as the first step? What, or what do you see, do you see this as, you know, we're not gonna boil the ocean. Is this putting one foot in front of the other, which comes back to, what do you see needing to happen first for there to be the cumulative public will, mm -hmm. you know, it, you know, who's going to be able to tell that story in a way that will inspire people to trust again, that we can get to equality. That's a great question and, and really eloquently put. Um, and it can't, it's not going to happen all at once if it happens at all. The obstacles cannot be overstated. I no. mean, <laughs> we have legislative logjam. We have national logjam. It's not as though Congress is fighting itself while the people all want to come together and sing right. in the chorus. The people distrust and despise each other, I'm afraid. Um, and we have profoundly anti-democratic measures being taken by the Republican Party in order to hold on to power without a majority. That's essentially what they're doing. That fight has to be fought. You cannot ignore it because it's the daily erosion of, of democracy, but it's not, fighting it is not gonna lead to the answer because right. I don't think we will, we, we cannot be rid of each other. No one's going to win, finally. I don't believe that one side or the other is going to conquer. Each side holds a kind of fantasy that the other side is going to disappear somehow. And with each election that one side wins, it imagines that it's on the road to victory. And then the next election comes, and no, the other side's still there, still fighting hard. <laughs> I would say two answers to your good question. One, 
one step at a time, begin to show that government can actually make our material lives better, more secure, more prosperous and free. And I think Biden is doing that with the COVID relief bill, the infrastructure bill, and the family bill. Now, these are not going to pass in the form that I would like to see. Right. The fact that he's put them on the table and really forced everyone in Washington to say, are you for this or against this, um, is a smart move because it says, I, Joe Biden, am on the side of ordinary people of all kinds. I want to give them a better shot. I want the corporations to have less power. I want monopolies to begin to be broken up. I want labor to have a stronger voice in the workplace. And I want the safety net to be rebuilt. And I want bridges and roads and broadband to be restored and brought to parts of the country where they never were. So these are all to me really good policy ideas, whether or not they get passed immediately or in the right form. He is pointing to a certain direction. And if only he were a better Reagan, if only he had the power of rhetoric, he could articulate a vision that all of this adds up to, which I think is what I call equal America. But Biden doesn't talk that way. He speaks in kind of homilies and personal stories, and it doesn't quite rise to the level of a of a grand vision, but I think he's on the right track. But the other part of it is to begin to learn how to listen and talk to other Americans again. Journalists have a role to play here. We need to get off Twitter, stop building our own soapboxes and become reporters again and restore news to the rest of the country and local news and revive local news, which is an essential thing that's begun to die but so do all, all Americans. I think national service is one way that young people will learn not just to see themselves as <clears throat> citizens, but to learn to work with Americans who don't think or look or talk like them, which we've lost because we're all now cordoned off by class and race and politics. So I think there are a lot of ways without demanding that the other side surrender or abdicate. You can't, yeah. but that slowly we can begin to exercise those muscles of citizenship that have atrophied. Um, and, and in the meantime, you know, build a school or mitigate the effects of global warming or um, serve the country in the military or clear forests or whatever it takes in order to teach uh, our, the next generation how to be fellow citizens. You know, George, there are, you know, you've got so much in this book. I mean, I don't, I, I don't see if you, I don't know if you can tell, like I have, I mean, it I looks can. like maybe I have every page turned down, but. I see you've been reading that book, Roxanne. But what? <laughs> our, our, you've been reading it, but I, I want our audience to know this is a short book. It's, it may be a kind of dense and intense little book, but it's short. It's, it, to me, this is more like a, the knife blade than, um, than, than, than some massive tome. So I've tried to condense all of it that we're talking about into the most concise form I could. And, and I think you have. And the point I was going to make is that you know, you have a lot of very practical ideas. I mean, you you even have an idea of how we should begin to have these conversations with people with whom we agree and not try to do them in large audiences, but one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, so I, I want to make sure that, it, you know, we can't get to it all, but I think reading um, this book begins to give us um, some of those ideas. And I want to get to two quick things before I ask you a last question. One is, I, I want to reinforce your, you have a lot of good material in here on what journalists need to do. And, you know, you talk about from 2000 to 2020, 2000 local newspapers were limited and half the jobs in journalism, th that feels to me like a crucial uh, failure in our being able to adequately self-govern. But, you know, you also bring up the point that journalists have become a little clickbaity themselves. 
Yes. You know, they don't want to annoy anybody. They don't want to get attacked on Twitter. And are they really doing their jobs? Yeah, I, I've been quite critical of, of my own profession because I, I do think the incentives are no longer to spend a lot of time reporting on an obscure subject in a hard to reach place that no one's heard of. There's just almost no incentive anymore. The financial basis of journalism was destroyed by the digital age, by Google, Facebook, um, and Craigslist. So without that financial base, journalists now have very little incentive other than honor and, and, and a professional code and a desire to get to know other people to do that. Instead, a lot of us spend a lot of time on Twitter, on social media, building a brand, expanding our followers, um, making fun of our enemies to the delight of our friends and our tribe and building a tribe, kind of belonging to a tribe instead of thinking for ourselves and at times thinking unpopular thoughts and saying unpopular things and thinking and standing alone. The idea of standing alone, which for me is at the heart of the writing life, the willingness and need to think for yourself and if necessary, be the only one saying what you're saying, that is gone. There's no problem yeah. on that any longer. And instead the fear of being on the outs with other journalists or with other people is so strong that, that a lot of writers are, are biting their tongues and, and staying silent, which means they've really given up the, the vocation. So I think journalists with the right financial and other incentives need to return to what our real mission is, which is to report and to bring facts. And in, instead of social media, which has become a source of extreme polarization, as we know, with everyone living in their own reality, their own fantasy, instead, the authority of journalism could begin to be reclaimed if journalists um, start doing our job again. But one of our audience asked, you know, how do we learn to debate and listen and argue? And that has to do with education partly. And there's another bit of the book, I think, where I talk about civic education, which to me is a crucial part of any K through 12 curriculum, but which has fallen out of favor because it turned out to be polarizing. It got too political. I think we need to bring civic education back not in the old fashioned three branches of government. How does a bill become a law? Of course, we need to teach that. But what we really need to teach is how to think, how to listen, right. how, to think, how to argue, how to compromise, how to decide. Those are those skills of citizenship and self-government that can be part of a, of a curriculum without forcing children to be indoctrinated into any fixed view of American history. Instead, mm -hmm. let's teach them to think for themselves about American history. And, and I am beginning to see some gra grassroots things around the country that's starting to bring civics and the teaching of civics back into um, some schools. The, the other piece that you talk about that is critical to our self-government is a a system of voting that is considered fair and accessible. There's obviously an enormous amount now going on, both about voter access and uh, with states creating partisan ethical um, procedures to decide on um, an election. What do you think, you know, I don't see us having the will to change the electoral college. What do you see as the most important element of the, the voting conversation that each of us ought to be paying attention to and remaining active within our communities? Well, I mean, the restrictions on access, whether it's mail-in voting or early voting hours or voter ID laws, um, are are dangerous because they are an, an attempt, an intentional attempt to keep certain voters from voting. They don't have to succeed because actually I think the data show turnout is not all that much affected when these laws change. The, the parts of the new laws that scare me the most are the ones you mentioned, Roxanne, which are the ones that make uh, the machinery of elections partisan, utterly yeah. partisan, where state legislatures can essentially overturn the certification of an election by nonpartisan officials, by the Secretary of State or by 
uh, the county boards. This is what this is what Trump tried to do, um, and he if if he had had uh, a majority in Congress willing to do it, he would still be president, and a majority of his own party was willing to do and it. And it was close. I mean, when you think about that, anybody that any of these elected officials actually sided with him. It's what what it told me was that. Democratic virtue is not dead. If you looked at the behavior of the county election boards, the secretaries of state, yeah. um, the poll workers who are along with the essential workers, the heroes of 2020, um, and also the judges uh, who refused to throw out election results, even though they were named to their job by Trump's party. And yeah, the journalists too, who did a great job of reporting on what exactly went on in, um, in, in the counties in Georgia and Arizona that were contested. So it showed that civic virtue could save one election. I'm not sure it can save the next one because the rules are being changed. And I don't know that the Supreme Court is gonna throw out state laws that put the power of deciding how a state is going to cast its votes in the hands of a state legislature, which basically the Constitution says is okay. It's the way it happens. So the only answer to that is public opinion. Will our public allow an election uh, to be stolen and to be subverted? Um, and that, it scares me to ask that question because I don't know that we can be sure the answer is no. Yeah. I To me, that's the scariest issue confronting us because without that being resolved positively the rest feels almost impossible well i think if the next election if 2022 um and then 2024 appear to be subverted by partisan legislatures I'm afraid there's gonna be violence. There's gonna be violence as we saw on January 6th, but this time it's going to be rightly outraged voters who have truly seen their vote stolen. They, they were not stolen in 2020, but they can be stolen in 2020. Now. And if that happens, I think that almost inevitably leads to violence. And then that becomes an excuse for counter violence. And then we're on a, a cycle which, other countries have fallen into and which are very hard to get out of once you fall into them. This is the nightmare scenario. So George, I'm gonna ask for a big pivot from that statement. Hmm. Are you optimistic? It's not a word I apply to myself, but I am. I have hopes. That's why the book is called Last Best Hope. Mm -hmm. I have hopes that we, still care about democracy, that there's still some last remaining ties between American and American, um, and that a country that has come back from worse, the Civil War, the Great Depression, um, is not going to commit suicide over the Pfizer vaccine or um, the you know, stop the steel lie. I, I, I just have to hope that we still have a little bit of both pragmatism, but also love of country. This is where patriotism is really tested. Are you willing to give up a bit of your own desires in order to save the country? Plus I have kids, Roxanne, and I cannot give up on mm. they're still in the school. Future. I can't, yeah, I can't give up on their future here. Um, there would be sort of selfish and unfatherly for me to say, ah, we've really screwed it up now. I'm afraid it's hopeless kids, but you take care of it. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Yeah, you'll, you'll do better than we did. You know, this is what kids these days hear and it's profoundly unfair to them to dump it. Yeah. Up. It's our, it's our job. It's our responsibility. So I have to have hope. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to take that. Uh, We've been talking with George Packer, the author of Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. 
this really important book gives us the history, the understanding, and most importantly, the path for us to work towards restoring, recreating a democracy uh, that works for us all. So, uh, George, thank you. Uh, you know, I I, um, I said it at the outset. I am a fervent admirer. I've I've read probably every article you've written, every book uh, that you you've written, and I'm grateful for this uh, book because it it is very accessible for all of us to think about what we each have to do, what we each have to do in order for us to, you know, end up on this other side of what looks kind of bleak, but I'm going to go with you. I'm going to stick with the hope line. Well, thanks, Roxanne. You've read the book as I wanted it to be read, which is the best gift you can give a writer. So uh, thank you for that. And also for letting me uh, come to the podcast and talk about Last Best Hope. Great, George. You be well. You too. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.